a few weeks ago, I was caught in a very dangerous situation. As we all know, my proud, beloved UNC Tar Heels won the national title in college basketball. And I was up way too late that night watching the game, watching the press conferences, watching the post game, reading social media, texting with friends and family. And many, many times that night, I watched the One Shining Moment compilation video that CBS puts together every year. I should also add that when I was writing this sermon and talked about the One Shining Moment thing, I went to YouTube and watched the One Shining Moment again, and it brought tears to my eyes. I have a problem. But here's where the dangerous situation came in. Because right after the One Shining Moment video, there immediately came on the TV a commercial for UNC 2017 National Champions gear. T-shirts, sweatshirts, water glasses, flags, keychains, hats. Anything that you could possibly want them to put UNC 2017 National Champions on, they'd put UNC 2017 National Champions on and sell it to you for lots of money. And as I watched that commercial, in the joy and glow of my team winning a championship, I knew that I was the exact person that that commercial was for. Because before it was even over, I found myself, without realizing what I was doing, reaching for my iPad to go on the internet and purchase such gear. I didn't buy anything though. I was so proud of myself. I stopped myself. Although, to be honest, this is a regular part of my daily life. I'm the one that's totally susceptible to the end cap items at the grocery store. No, I didn't know that I wanted to try that new brand of tortilla chips, but since you have placed it right there, I think I will. Oh, there's a new flavor of Captain Crunch. Yes and yes. Now, the worst offender is Target because they put the DVDs right in front of you as you're checking out. So if you're like third in line and you see, oh, yes, I do want that bad movie for $5. My wife does not like it when I go to stores. <laughs> that commercial, grocery stores, department stores, basically anyone who sells stuff is really trying to take advantage of my lack of impulse control. And it's kind of mean for them to do, if you ask me but I'm sure you didn't. But oftentimes, what happens is I see something. I have a feeling within me that says, I want that, and that feeling immediately turns into an action. Now, this is a long, drawn-out, hopefully comical way to illustrate a point that we all know. There is a deep connection between impulse and action, between feeling and action. And those feelings, those impulses, reveal a lot about the intentions that our actions have. If I want to stop buying Count Chocula cereal just because I see it on the end cap at Walmart, there are some behavioral things that I can do to try and change my actions. And that might work for a little while. But on a deeper level, I might need to examine what my intentions are in buying so many things, what my feelings around consumption are, and why I have the impulses that I do. Because it's only on that deeper level that true healing can occur. This morning, our scripture lesson involves Jesus asking us to seek healing on a deeper level. 
Jesus is asking us to address problems where they really reside. Jesus is connecting intentions with actions, feelings with actions, impulses with actions. And Jesus is connecting prohibitions in the law, prohibitions in the Torah, to the impulses and desires they were meant to correct and to heal. But here's the rub. When Jesus reframes the Torah in the way we are about to see him doing, he is actually asking us to do something much harder. It's easier to cut up a credit card than it is to deal with the complex feelings and emotions that lead to overspending. Jesus is going to ask us to do the real hard work that we often avoid. And Jesus is going to be relentless in his scope. Our sermon series for this month is entitled, I Literally Can't Even. And it's possible that after really wrestling with this text, you might say, I literally can't even. This is hard. This is too hard. This is impossible. But Jesus makes the impossible possible. With Jesus, you literally can even. And it is this way, it is only this way, that we can experience salvation in the here and now. Now before we turn to our scripture, let me set the stage. Our scripture comes from Matthew 5, which is the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the part immediately before what we're reading this morning. And towards the end of that section, Jesus begins talking about his own interpretation of Torah. Jesus says he has come not to abolish Torah, but to fulfill it. And that not one iota will be scratched out of Torah before it is fulfilled. And then Jesus tells his followers that their righteousness must exceed even that of the Pharisees if they are to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the context for our scripture this morning. And in our scripture this morning, Jesus is going to begin to give his interpretation of Torah. We're reading in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. It's on this beautiful screen right here. It's printed in your lifeline. And um, yeah, let's go. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you 
that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one, even one hair white or black. All you need is to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, I might not be able to make my own hair white or black, but I'll tell you what my kids can. That was a joke about kids giving us gray hair. Sorry. Now, I want to make a few comments about this piece of scripture generally. No more jokes, I promise. And then I want to break it down to its component parts. The first is that we see a phrase repeated, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This was a common way that rabbis would give their teachings in ancient times. This was the formula for giving an interpretation of Torah. Now, if you'll allow me a brief digression, and you always do, you're so gracious, we might ask why there needed to be interpretations of Torah. I mean, laws are pretty straightforward, right? If the speed limit says 25, don't go more than 25. If it says don't commit murder, then don't commit murder. Why do we need interpretations for Torah? Well, mainly for two reasons. One, sometimes laws are a little vague. And two, life is way more complicated than any law code can adequately represent. I'll give you an example. The Ten Commandments say, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, which means ancient Israelites weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. But what is work? Is it work if I cook for my family? Is it work if I do laundry or clean? Is it work if I walk to my cousin's house? What if my cousin lives a town over? Or let's get back to a law that I had previously said was pretty straightforward. Don't commit murder. That seems easy. But what if someone from another civilization that doesn't abide by Torah is coming to kill me? Or to kill my children? Can I kill in self-defense? What if an animal of mine tramples my neighbor? So rabbis interpreted Torah for the people and gave them different ways of applying Torah to their everyday life. A certain distance of walking constituted work. A certain amount of cooking constituted work. So you learn to work within different parameters in order to follow Torah. Jews to this day still do this. And before we think that these people were crazy, we do the same thing as well. How many of you have Bibles that have sections at the end that give verses for what the Bible says about certain topics? I've been a part of youth retreats both as a participant and a leader that are about what the Bible says about dating. And then there's all those issues of modern life that the Bible is silent on. And different denominations and different churches and different pastors help people understand how to relate the Bible to issues in their daily life. Did you know that the United Methodist Church has an ethical position on alcohol advertising at sporting events? I don't know what that position is, but I know we have one. And I know that the writers of the Bible 
could not have, have, there's nothing black or white about whether or not Miller Lite can advertise at the final four. Biblical writers had no clue what the final four was. So religious people have always wanted to understand how Torah or how the Bible speaks to issues in everyday life. And Torah and the Bible have always been interpreted to help people walk in the way of righteousness. And in this section, we see Jesus doing the same thing. Our section today has four main parts. And in order to really see what Jesus is doing, we should examine each individual part. The first is anger. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, Raka, is answerable to the courts, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The first law that Jesus interprets for the people is the law that says, you shall not murder. And if you do murder, the punishment for that crime is being subject to judgment. But Jesus says that if you even get angry with a brother or sister, you'll receive the punishment for murder. So Jesus is saying, don't be angry with a brother or sister. Let's go ahead and get that. I literally can't even out of the way early. Jesus, I literally can't even not get angry. Have you seen I-95 these days? So can we go back and focus on not murdering people? Except for we know that most people don't kill someone else on a whim. We know that killing, that murder, is a sign for us that something is wrong with our world. But that infection, that disorder, that killing and murdering people in, point to in the world are put into the world in other ways as well. Jesus is calling our attention to the fact that while most of us will never kill someone, all of us will participate in the fundamental disorder of our world that killing illustrates. We will just participate in it in other ways like being angry with someone else, holding a grudge against someone else, hating someone else, being profoundly and intentionally disconnected from someone else. And while most of us will stop short of killing the person at whom we are angry, simply not killing that person does not lead to our healing. And so Jesus tells us that if we are to inherit the kingdom of heaven, if we are to enter into his kingdom, if we are to be his followers, we have to be healed. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus takes the command to not commit adultery and ratchets it up further, saying that if you lust after someone, you are guilty. Once again, Jesus is connecting the action with the motivation, the feeling, and the impulse. Once again, Jesus is saying that in order to be truly healed, we have to deal with the deeper disorder within us rather than just look to external actions. But in this case, I want to talk about what that fundamental disorder is. Because anger is a somewhat ambiguous emotion and one that we see Jesus himself exhibit. But lust is something different. Lust is easy to pin down, easy to trace, and easy to track how it is a communal disorder. Jesus does not say that if you look at someone and are physically attracted to them, Jesus uses the word lust, 
which differs greatly from mere physical attraction. Lust is a visceral word. When we lust after someone, we are objectifying them. When we lust after someone else, we are turning a person, a soul, a child of God into an object that exists for our own desire and pleasure. It's easy to see how this happens in the sexual realm, but it happens in other areas as well. There is a tendency within all of us to treat other people, other souls, people for whom Jesus died as objects for our own gain, as a means to a personal end. Healing the disorder within our communities and within ourselves involves healing ourselves of that fundamental impulse to objectify others. And it is this fundamental impulse that hangs over Jesus' teaching on divorce, to which we now turn. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus' teachings here appear harsh. But let me give you some historical context. In the ancient world, husbands could at any moment and for any reason divorce their wives. And when that happened, women were not given their share of the property. They weren't given alimony. Men could easily get remarried. For women, remarriage was nearly impossible. Divorced women would have to move back with their parents and hope that their families had a means of taking care of them. So a prohibition against divorce was a way to help protect women who could be set aside at any reason, at any moment, and would have nothing to fall back on. And in telling his followers that husbands could only divorce their wives for issues of infidelity, Jesus is forcing husbands to care for their wives as a whole people rather than objects that can be set aside and exchanged. And in the final section, Jesus takes up the subject of swearing an oath. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now this section might seem out of place with the other things that Jesus has talked about. But I think it forms a nice bow, crystallizing the deeper meaning to what Jesus is calling his followers to do. Jesus here tells his followers that they should not swear an oath, but rather let their yes be yes and their no be no. To understand how this fits with the other stuff, we need to ask ourselves a fundamental question. Why would someone need to swear an oath? Oaths are necessary as to indicate an extra level of truthfulness, an extra level of trust. But that's only necessary if you're the type of person that can't be trusted on the surface. You only need an extra level of trust if your baseline trustworthiness isn't enough. So when Jesus says, don't swear an oath, he could easily be saying, don't be the kind of person who needs to swear oaths. Which is what he gets at when he says, simply let your yes be yes or your no be no. So what Jesus is saying here is that his followers need to be different kinds of people. 
which is really what he has been getting at all along. You see, laws that regulate or change our behavior simply do that, change behavior. They don't make us fundamentally different people. Being not angry, not holding a grudge, not lusting, not objectifying, being trustworthy, that gets into matters of the soul. That makes us different people. That heals us deep down. That actually changes us, not just simply the things that we do. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement that led to the United Methodist Church, believed that God's grace could sanctify us, could change us, could make us healed and whole and better, such that we'd become perfect in love in this lifetime. What Jesus is talking about in this section of his sermon is about us becoming perfect in love, avoiding anger, loving people, honoring commitments over our own whims, being people who can be trusted, being a healed and whole person. That's what it is to be made perfect in love. And most of the time when people hear this particular belief of Mr. Wesley's, they respond, I literally can't even. And yet with Jesus, I believe that we can. So this week, I want you to think about the following questions. And I want you to act on them. And I want you to do the hard work, the important work, that comes from not just changing behavior, but in being healed. This week, I want you to think about, with whom do I need to be reconciled? And what do I need to do to seek that reconciliation? How can I let one person know this week that I value them as a whole person? What do I need to do to be a more trustworthy person in all aspects of my life? Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, in Christ you challenge us, you call us, to be different kinds of people, to be healed people, to be whole people. God, that is so hard. It's so easy to, to change our actions. It's much easier to modify our behavior. So God, if you're really calling us to change, to change deep down, to change our feelings and emotions, our impulses. God, we will need your help. We will need your grace. We will need your Holy Spirit. We will need you to be the one to heal us. And God, for those times when we can't live up to this, we will need your forgiveness. God, we're willing to go with you. We're willing to walk down this road of discipleship, of sanctification, of healing. But we need you to journey with us. So speak into our hearts. Speak into our lives. Pour your Holy Spirit upon us so that we know as you are healing us, as you are changing us, as you are calling us to be different people, that you are with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our God gives us 
a sign of his abiding presence. Our God gives us a sign of his grace. 